good to have you here this morning. Aren't you thankful for just a little bit of sunshine this morning? Just a little bit? Amen. I tell you what, Seattle, Washington has nothing on us. I mean, it has just been dreary and cloudy and goodness gracious. It was, uh, we were driving home from Lima last night and the sun finally came out up where we were at. And I've never seen this before, but it was an orange double rainbow. Orange. It was beautiful. It was the strangest thing that I've really ever seen. And I stayed on the road and we made it home safely. <laughs> well, welcome this morning. Uh, we're continuing the series uh, this week, uh, Radical Faith. We've been studying the book of James together. And if you've ever read the book of James, you know that James is very direct. Um, and every time I read this book, I get black eyes. It just punches me in the face. It's a hard book to read. And uh, because James calls us to a radical faith, radical living uh, as true disciples of Christ. Over the past couple of weeks, Pastor Paul's covered a lot of ground. First of all, he, uh, in the first week of the series, we talked about how radical faith recognizes all circumstances, uh, can lead to spiritual maturity, that God can work through any circumstance in our life and actually use it, even, even the bad stuff, even the wounds God can use to advance his kingdom and to shape us and to form us into the people that he intends for us to be. Radical faith, we also have learned, takes personal responsibility for temptation. We are not victims. We are human beings. We're wired a certain way. And as Christ followers, our radical faith teaches us that we need to take responsibility and develop strategies in our lives so that we are not tripped up by temptation and led into sin, sin that leads to, to death. Last week, we talked about how radical faith allows the word to transform us from the inside out. It's when we read the word and then do the word that the word actually starts changing us. So it's this practice of the word in our lives. That is the process through which we are transformed into the people of God. And today, we're going to be talking about how radical faith welcomes everyone. Radical faith welcomes everyone. I see a couple of grins. Just so you know, I got the assignment to preach this sermon five weeks ago. Five weeks ago. God has something that he wants us to hear this morning. I know that he's spoken to me. This has been a very helpful time of study for me this week as I've prepared for this message. I want to draw your attention to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Aren't you thankful that we can come to an open public place and open the word of God without fear of persecution and read it aloud to each other? Thank God for our liberty to do that this morning. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking to Christians here. Note that as we get into this. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you go stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil hearts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? 
Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for its truth. And Lord, you have aligned things so that this is the word you want us to hear this morning. I pray that you'd help me not to get in the way. I pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd help us to be honest and open to the leading and the voice of your Holy Spirit, and that you'd help us to respond accordingly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Is anybody uh, familiar with uh, the radio personality Gary Burbank? Anybody grow up in southeast Ohio or southwest Ohio? Gary Burbank. There's a couple of Pastor Josh is. Gary Burbank, uh, I'm a, if you don't know anything about me, I, when I got out of college, I was in radio for several years. And he was like one of my biggest, uh, I was one of his biggest fans because this guy was really talented. And he was always on the afternoon show on WLW, the home of the Reds, down in Cincinnati. And Gary Burbank, he was a comedian. And he would always do these, these comedy bits. That was like his whole show. Um, and sometimes it was irreverent, but it was funny stuff. And he would do these characters. And he had one character whose name was Earl Pitts. Anybody familiar with Earl Pitts? Yes, we got, you know, and every time, you know, but Earl Pitts would come on the radio at a certain time every day, and you would hear, and then Earl Pitts would always start it off by saying, you know what makes me sick? You know what makes me vomit? <laughs> and then he would go into his tirade, and he was kind of a redneck. <laughs> so I, you know, I did, I'm a little redneck too, you know. But uh, Earl Pitts, he would always go into his tirade, and it would be this, this tirade on some topic of the day, and it, he would handle it in a funny way. And in his righteous indignation at the end of the segment, he would always say, wake up, America, you know? So, well, you know what makes me sick? You know what makes me vomit? You know what makes me sick? Yogurt. <laughs> Yogurt makes me sick. Makes me want to, I don't know why. Victoria loves it and swears by it. She makes me go to the store and buy it for her. Don't you? <laughs> and she's like, you know, she's like, oh, it's great for your, your, your digestive system. And I don't get it. If it's so good for you, why do you have to put all that fruit in it? <laughs> But when I even see or think about yogurt, it just kind of makes me, it makes my stomach turn. It, it makes me want to vomit. And literally, it makes me want to vomit. It's revolting to me. Um, another thing that makes me sick is Mark Pie stir fry chicken. Mark Pie stir fry chicken. Let me take you back to 1993 when we lived in Delaware, Ohio, and there was a Mark Pie restaurant in Delaware. And I always loved their stir-fried chicken. And, you know, we would get it often, as you could tell. Um, and one night we got Mark Pie stir-fried chicken, 
And that evening in the middle of the night, I got the stomach flu. And so you can imagine what happened with that. And so every time now that I eat or think of Mark Pie stir fried chicken, it makes my stomach turn. You know what makes me sick? <laughs> Mark Pie stir fried chicken. You know, it's just like we have these experiences in our lives and just a taste associated with an experience. It just totally ruins that thing for us. And it just causes this revulsion. If you've ever gone through a colonoscopy, the prep work, it's changed my total view of apple juice for the rest of my life. I can't stand to drink apple juice now because it makes me think of that stuff. It makes my stomach turn. It's revolting to me. So we have things that make us sick, make us want to vomit. You probably have your own, and you can, stare, you can share stories over lunch, okay? But we also have our favorite things. We have things that we really like, and they can be foods. Um, you know, I really, some of my favorite things are gadgets. I save my allowance, and I spend my allowance on gadgets. You know, I like phones and iPads and stuff like that. And Vicki will attest that about the only thing I ever, ever buy for myself is gadgets. Is that safe? It's very true. You know, I might need a lawnmower and the grass is four feet high, but I'll go buy an iPad. This is one of my favorite things. I also like historical things. So I really like things. Some of my favorite things are historical artifacts. Um, and when it really hits close to my, my personal life, I think that's extra cool. Um, in our old house on Walnut Street, uh, I was digging in the basement one day, and I found this sign in the bottom of our basement. And I should have, like, brought it and put it up on the screen or something like that. But it says, Marysville, Ohio, population 7,000. The population of Marysville, Ohio was 7,000, like, in 1968. You know, it's like 25,000 plus or something like that now. But that's cool, and I've got it in my garage. I actually took it with us when we moved last summer. I'm going to do something with it. I haven't figured that out. We were in our new house last summer, and it's hard to believe it's been almost a year um, and I found in, our, in a drawer in our house about a day or two in, I found the typewritten Browning, you would have loved this, Devin. I don't even, I, you have to come to my house and you have to help me find out what typeface it is. But it is a typewritten memo. It's the work order for our house. And in the drawer, I also, it's a three-page memo. It's got all the amenities and descriptions of the home. And, and in the same drawer, I found, it was rolled up very nicely, the hand uh, drawn blueprints for the house. I thought, this is cool. This is our house now. We bought this house and we've got this history. My favorite thing is history, so it jazzes me up. So you know what I did? I framed that stuff and it's now hanging in our living room. So we've got these original pictures of the house being built and, you know, just that history. It just makes my wheels turn. It gets me going. It's my, some of my favorite stuff. Uh, you know, some of my favorite things are my family, my friends. You know, and, and I think that if you really want to get a good view of what your favorite things are, you can pull out your phone and you can go to your pictures and just start scrolling through your pictures and start singing like Julie Andrews, these are a few of my favorite things, just with each swipe. We all have favorite things. We're wired to play favorites. It's just in our human nature. We are wired to play favorites. We do it all the time. We play favorites. We show favor to one over another. We choose who's in and we choose who's out. And we base it on appearances some of the time. In this passage, in James, the whole issue was on favoring the rich, who was dressed very nicely, over the poor. 
who is dressed kind of shabbily. We base it on appearances. We also base it on affiliation. Sometimes we base our favorites on affiliation. I say O-H, you say? Buckeye love, less than 100 days, it's coming. Journey to another national championship, baby. We'll all get fired up. Hallelujah. <laughs> we favorites, affiliation. Has anybody been to an Ohio State-Michigan game before at Ohio Stadium? Oh, we got one at Michigan-Ohio Stadium. So you know what it's like to go to Ohio Stadium and go to a, it is an experience. It is almost a religious ex experience. And I say, I mean, you go and it's that game and there's a lot on the line and the band comes down the ramp and they do the pregame show and a grown man cries. I'm serious. And some of you are like, what in the world? But it, that affiliation, that affinity is powerful. So you've been to a Michigan game up in Ann Arbor. We, we won. That's good. Has anybody else been to a Michigan game, Ohio State game in Ann Arbor? Ann Arbor? We've got a few. About uh, 10, 15 years ago, uh, Tony Ackley and Jeff Hatfield and I decided it would be a good idea for the Ohio State-Michigan game in Ann Arbor to do a road trip, a guy road trip, and we hopped in our automobile and went up Route 23, and we didn't have any tickets, so we went up and we scalped tickets, um, and we sat in Michigan Stadium, and the game we were at, Ohio State lost. And you talk about not being favored in a crowd wearing scarlet and gray and feeling shunned like an outsider, um, it was worth the trip, but I've never felt more alienated in my life, you know? And I'm sure that anybody who's a Michigan fan, sorry, where's Clint Lauterbach? Oh, he's not here. No, oh, man, poor guy. Let's pray for him. Um, anybody who's a Michigan fan who's gone to an Ohio State game, they feel the exact same way. We play favorites based on appearances. We, fav we, we play favorites based on affiliations. Sometimes we play favorites based on assumptions. We play favorites based on assumption, we sometimes have a tendency to leap to conclusions before we have all the facts. We leap to conclusions before we know all the details and we make decisions. We gravitate to people like us. We're partial to people who are partial to things that we like. We look for our tribe when we enter a room or a space, our people. We look for, for our people, people like me, people who like what I like, people who make me feel secure, people who make me feel accepted, people who don't threaten me. We play favorites. We're wired to play favorites. Favoritism reveals the true nature of our hearts. Favoritism reveals the true nature of our hearts, reveals our biases. Our biases influence how we live our lives. My favorite things influence where I go. My, I would not have gone to Michigan Stadium had I not been a Buckeye fan, let me tell you. <laughs> Our favorite things influence where we go. Our favorite things influence who we hang with. Our favorite things influence how we spend our time. It's natural to play favorites, but it's also very common for playing favorites to get out of hand. In our personal lives, when playing favorites gets out of hand, it can result in hurt feelings or broken relationships. At work, when somebody's playing favorites, that can be one of the most disengaging things when you go into the workplace and somebody else is treated better than another person. It can really create a disengaging environment to the point where you don't even want to go to work because you're just like, this isn't fair. This isn't fair to me. It's not fair to that person. It's not fair to anybody. It can be really disengaging. As a matter of fact, in the workplace, playing favorites can go all the way to breaking the law and turn into discrimination. 
there are laws against playing favorites uh, in the work, civil laws uh, against playing uh, favorites in the workplace. Playing favorites in the workplace can also just really lead to a, an unoptimized, non-productive environment. Because when people are favored, you know, not everybody's able to bring their best forward and do their very best. And it just becomes really non-productive. And, you know, at the end of the day, nobody, nobody wants to play on a team like that, where somebody's favored over another, where there's, you know, special treatment going out in the workplace. And I see heads nodding. We can all identify with that. So playing favorites, it can go bad at home. It can go bad at work. It can go bad in the church. Playing favorites can go bad in the church. It could be as simple as making a new person, a visitor, feel unwelcome just by not acknowledging their presence. Or it could be as dangerous as creating an atmosphere where people who are really seeking Christ are turned away or maybe even repelled because they're not comfortable in our sanitized Christian bubble that we've created in our culture within our church. So playing favorites, we're wired to do it, but it can have some really, really devastating consequences. And for that reason, in the kingdom of God, playing favorites is forbidden. Playing favorites is forbidden. God considers favoritism. He considers having a heart of judgment as sin. And if you don't think that favoritism and judgment are at play in this passage, just read verse 4, where James says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We're not just talking about playing favorites this morning. We're talking about a heart of judgment and how that's forbidden in the kingdom of God. We're commanded many times in the Bible to resist judging others. We have it in this verse, or in this passage in verse 9. James says, but if you show favoritism, you sin. That's pretty cut and dry. You know, boom, black eye to me. I mean, I read that. I mean, James just pulls no punches. He's just really straightforward and simple. But he says, you play favorites, you're sinning. Just calls it for what it is. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus is very specific about judging other people. He specific. This is in red letters, so this is the words of Jesus Christ. Do not judge. There it is. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. John chapter 3, verse 17. The very core of the mission of Christ is to save, not to condemn. Pastor Paul alluded to this last week, and I'll allude to it again here because it's very relevant. Jesus said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. At the heart of the great commission, at the heart of the great commission, we find this prohibition against judging of playing favorites. Favoritism at its very heart implies waving the gavel of judgment in our hearts. Think about that. Favoritism at its very heart implies waving the gavel of judgment in our own hearts. When we play favorites, when we wave the gavel of judgment in our hearts, someone always loses. Someone is always excluded. Someone is always, always marginalized. When we jump to conclusions, when we speak poorly of others without all the facts, we wave the gavel of judgment in our hearts. That's called gossip. 
We tend, when we don't have all the facts as human beings, to fill the vacuum, the void with negativity. And we always tend to think the worst. We go negative. We hate it in our campaigns, yet somehow we seem to tolerate it in our own lives. When we quietly despise another person in our heart, we wave the gavel of judgment. That's called prejudice. When we shun others and make them feel unwelcome or uncomfortable intentionally, we wave the gavel of judgment in our hearts. That's called passive-aggressive behavior. None of us like that. Waving the gavel of judgment, it's ugly. It is ugly. I'm going to use a big word for you here. It feels yucky when the gavel of judgment is waved. It feels yucky. It feels uncomfortable. And sometimes we may be doing it and we're not even aware of it, but the people around us can see it plain as day. It's a blind spot sometimes in our lives because we're wired that way. It's, we're wired to play favorites. Playing favorites, why? You know, why is it forbidden? Playing favorites, exercising a heart of judgment, poisons the potential of the Great Commission. I want you to think about that. Playing favorites poisons the potential of the Great Commission. And you got, you know, I look at this and I'm like, why is this like this? I like to take things apart. I like to learn and figure it out and try to figure out why things are the way they are. Um, why is favoritism forbidden? Why is judgment forbidden? I've been doing a lot of study on this, and it's pretty evident to me that when we wave the gavel of judgment in our hearts, we're out of our swim lane. You know, in my workplace, in my job during the week, I am a manager of many people, and every single day, multiple times a day, I have somebody come into my office and they're complaining to me that somebody is doing their job for them. Somebody has jumped in their swim lane. And that's like the corporate phrase that's used, right? And the whole issue is there's a lack of role clarity. People don't know what their role is. And since they don't know what their role is, they wind up doing somebody else's job and it creates uh, ineffective performance, a lot of frustration, and the result just isn't bad. When we wave the gavel of judgment, we're out of our swim lane because we have no moral authority to judge other people. Think about that. We're out of our swim lane because we actually have no moral authority to judge others. When Curtis was a little boy, and he's big and bald now, um, but when he was a little boy, and I don't even know the exact circumstances, but I remember that Victoria was trying to discipline him and trying to get him to obey and he was questioning why he had to obey. And Victoria said, you are going to obey because I am the boss. And in his little three or four year old mind, he turned that around the next day and he's playing with his brother. And we hear him saying, Stephen, I'm the boss, you're the boss. And at dinner that night, he's like tossing out, hey mom, you're the boss, I'm the boss. Dad, you're the boss, Stephen's the boss. He had no authority <laughs> as a four-year-old child to declare who the boss in that household was. But it was really cute, and it's just kind of a cute example of how that little child had no authority to make that, to make that declaration. Paul emphasizes our lack of moral authority to cast judgment in Romans chapter 2. 
Now, we've been seeing a lot of Romans chapter 1 thrown around in recent days. But in the immediate chapter right afterwards, we've, we find Paul addressing this issue of judging others. And in, at the end of chapter 1, he basically lists a bunch of common sins that would be very familiar to us. And then he jumps into this comment. He says, you, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment, you do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Jesus underscores this point about how we lack the moral authority to judge other people. Back in Matthew chapter 7, Percy says, do not judge others. And then in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 7, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in yours? You hypocrite. You know, we think that Jesus is holding a little lamb and saying this. I think he said, you hypocrite. You make me vomit. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly and be able to remove the speck from your brother's eye. James hits on this exact same dynamic here in James chapter 2. He said, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. We lack the moral authority to cast judgment on our fellow brothers and sisters of the human race. You may not like to hear that. Don't judge me. That's the word of God this morning. And Jesus Christ embodies this truth in this powerful story in John chapter 8. If you even want to turn to John chapter 8, I want you to see these words if you're able to on page this morning. John chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus is at the Mount of Olives and he is praying. He is praying and he's doing his devotions. And it says in verse 2 of John chapter 8, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. They humiliated this woman. They made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Now they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down. He didn't say anything at first. Jesus bent down. He started to write on the ground with his finger in the dirt. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down. He was writing on the ground. Not really sure what Jesus wrote on the ground, but it's one of those pressing questions. Inquiring minds want to know. You know, when I get to the pearly gates, I'm going to ask God, who killed JFK? And this may be on my list as number two. What did Jesus write in the dirt? Don't think we'll care about these things when we get to heaven. But I, I do, I, I'm curious, and I've done a lot of studying on this, and there's a, there's a lot of scholarly speculation. But I have, a, I have a hunch that he wasn't just doodling. 
Anybody doodling right now? No, I'm just kidding. You do not have to raise your hand. It's okay. I don't think he was doodling in church. I've been guilty of that, by the way. I don't think he was doodling in church. I think that he may have been writing down the names of the accusers in the dirt. The master who has all authority underscored their lack of authority to judge this woman. The master who has all authority was underscoring their lack of authority because you know what? I think he was writing their names in the dirt. And maybe he was writing with the women they had slept with. The sins that they had committed. The trespasses that they had on their own record. Funny thing happened. We don't know what he wrote. But in verse 9 it says, At this, those who heard, they began to kind of look at the ground. And they began to go away. One at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. He says, Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The master with all of the authority in the universe to condemn this woman who was caught in the act and who was drug into church, humiliated in front of everybody and was totally guilty of the law. He forgave her. And he told her to go sin no more. Aren't you thankful for forgiveness? He underscored their lack of authority to judge because they too are sinners. We lack the moral authority to judge others because without Jesus we're just as flawed, we're just as sinful, we're just as messed up as anybody else is. And when we find people's lifestyles revolting to the point where they make us throw up, we need to be mindful that sin is sin in the eyes of God and that my sin is just as revolting to the eyes of God as another human being's sin. That's scriptural. Sin is sin. God is revolted by my sin. My sin. Preaching to Joe. God is revolted. Thank God for the grace of Jesus. Without the grace and mercy of Jesus, we are doomed. Aren't you thankful that he's given it to us? But there's this temptation in our carnal nature to somehow make somebody else's sin worse than mine. There's this inclination somehow to make my sin somehow lesser than the sin of others. When we start making our own rules about which sins are worse than others, we are building up walls. We are building up barriers. We are not creating an environment conducive for the Great Commission to happen. We become a stumbling block when we start making those kind of rules and judgment calls. And really, at the end of the day, the motive of our heart, when you really get down into it, it's to make ourselves feel better. Don't judge me. I'm just 
bringing the word of God. And you know what? People in the world aren't stupid. They know we're hypocrites. And just like Jesus taught, they look at us, and if, if they hear of judgment coming out of our mouths, they're going to say, you hypocrite. You make me vomit. There's a reason why the world reacts some of the times the way it does to the church. Because I think we've lost our way in this culture and we've tried to lead with judgment. With the gavel of judgment when we have no authority whatsoever to lead with the gavel of judgment. When the people of God lead with judgment, we are revolting to the world because in their eyes we lack any authority or credibility. Our words and our actions betray the true nature of our hearts. When we leave with judgment, we poison the potential of the Great Commission, all in the name of making me feel better about myself. That's a hard word to hear. That's tough stuff. Another black eye. Boom, James. That is the word of God. Favoritism is forbidden, and that is why it is forbidden, because we lack the authority to judge. It's not our job. Christ followers, however, our job is to lead with love, always, not judgment. Boy, and this is hard stuff. Mercy is based in love. James chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 here, James makes it really clear, black and white. If you really keep the law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. That's the word of God, folks. That's not me making an opinion or proof texting. I think scripture backs that up all the way around the horn if you study it long enough. We love to say, well, I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. And I would say, can we get rid of that phrase? Can we get rid of that bumper sticker? Because it doesn't work. Because as evangelical Christians in modern America, we've done a really good job of positioning our people who hate the sin. But how many of us... How many of our kind across the country are known as people who lead with love? Love the sinner, hate the sin. We focused a lot of energy on hating the sin, leading with judgment. When, boy, we've missed the point, and we need to lead with love. And you would say, we, we, haven't missed, we haven't missed the point. Yeah, we have. When you have people co-opting words like love and grace and mercy to veil sin underneath it, we have lost the high ground, folks, because we've led with judgment and we haven't led with the true love of Jesus Christ. And that's a hard word for me to hear. That's a hard word for me to say this morning. But I think it's the truth. And I think it's something that we need to hear. We need to be constantly reminded of our own deliverance from sin. We need to be constantly, I need to be constantly reminded of my deliverance of sin, of the mercy that was granted to me personally, and of my obligation to pay that mercy forward, to share that mercy with others in love. True Christ followers are people who always extend mercy to others based in love. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we need the Spirit to help us because our inbred nature is to judge. It is to lead with judgment. As a matter of fact, this tendency to need to lead with judgment is almost like a drug addiction. It's almost like we're hooked on it. We're hooked on it. It's like a drug addiction. We rationalize it. 
We'll make every excuse in the book why we should have the right to be able to judge somebody else. We will diminish our own sin by highlighting somebody else just to make ourselves feel better. We can't help ourselves. Sometimes it's just an automatic reaction. It's just we just dive right in, and the first words that are out of our mouth or the first thought that comes to our mind is a thought or a word of judgment. It's the way we're wired. We're wired. We need a savior. We need to be saved from this. This is part of the nature that we need to have wiped clean by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we feel like, well, I can't let that go. My whole world would fall apart if I let go that spirit of judgment in my heart. But contrary to this tug to judge, love is the bridge that allows the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of other people. Hear that? Love is the bridge that allows the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of other people. If we lead with favoritism or a heart of judgment, the result almost always is a, a bad outcome. It's yucky. It's a, heart of it's, a, it's a result of rejection. Somebody's not feeling good about the outcome. It's not effective. But if we lead with love, and I got a little chart up here I want you to look at. If we lead with love, and we're reaching out to people who are in sin. And instead of leading with judgment, we decide to lead and build a genuine, authentic relationship that's vested in them. When we build an authentic relationship with somebody in love, and it's truly coming from a place of love and we're not judgmental, that creates an atmosphere of credibility for me to share what God's done in my life. You know, so many times I think that we think that evangelism looks like going and telling people that they're in sin and they need to stop doing what they're doing. When in reality, evangelism is when we build effective, trusted relationships and people understand we're coming from a place of love and we're able to talk about how God is working in our lives. How God's working in my life. You can't pass on what you don't got. How's God working in my life? And then when I'm able to have a credible, loving relationship with somebody whose lifestyle may be revolting to me. But if I'm able to have a loving relationship, then suddenly, and I'm sharing what God's doing in my life, that's the witness. The witness is how God's changed me. That's my testimony. It's not about how God needs to change you. It's about how God's changed me. And when we start building a relationship where we're able to share how God's worked in our life, guess what? that creates an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit can move in and the Holy Spirit can convict. Do we have faith in God that he can take care of the salvation business and the lives of the people that we love? Because sometimes I think that we approach it like a debate that we think we need to win. That we think that we can argue people into a decision for Jesus Christ. And we look at it as a contest. Um, I hate the fact that on my minister's form, every year I have to fill out, fill out how many people I brought to Christ. And I just want to say, I brought no people to Christ. That is the work of the Lord. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Moving into people's life, convicting them where they're at of their sin, and bringing them to a place of salvation. Nobody convinced me to be a Christian. The Holy Spirit convicted me. The Holy Spirit convicted me and compelled me to realize I was in need and, can, and, and revealed the truth of Jesus Christ to me. That's my story. It wasn't because somebody pointed at me and said, Joe, you are disgusting. Your lifestyle is revolting to me. 
But when we lead with love, it creates an atmosphere and relationships where the Holy Spirit can work and where people can find Jesus Christ. Our job is to love. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's also our job, though, to maintain our integrity and to maintain spiritual truth and biblical truth in our lives. It does not mean we give up the farm on our biblical values. It does not mean that we compromise. We have to stick up for what's right when it impacts our lives. But it's a really fine line, and it's really hard. And I found that we can only lead with love if we are transformed from within. I am wired to play favorites. We are wired to judge. That is the hard wiring in our hearts and in our, it's just the way we're made. We need the Holy Spirit to move into our lives. We need a love from outside, from outside of ourselves to come in and displace that judgment. We need to be transformed. We need to be changed by the Holy Spirit. We need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's great if you had a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Awesome! But if it's not fresh, it's meaningless. That's an experience that we've got to keep up to date in our lives. We need to be changed by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. And that means we have to humble ourselves. That means that we have to be willing to lay down our right to judge on the altar and trust God to do that and to become people of love. I got a test for us this morning as we leave. How much do we love the lost? How much do we love the lost? Are we willing to forego our comfort zone so that the lost can find their way to the cross? Um, I told you earlier I have favorite things. One of my favorite things is music. Um, and one of my favorite groups uh, is Switchfoot. And I've got all of Switchfoot's albums back to the time that they were an unknown band in Southern California way back in the 90s, thanks to my boys introducing me to that stuff. Some good, your kids can introduce you to some awesome music, by the way. And uh, Switchfoot has a song, and I've got this quote from this song, and it's real deep theology. This is, this is heavy lifting here. If it doesn't break your heart, it's not love. If it doesn't break your heart, it isn't love. I've learned a lot over the past eight weeks about what real love is like. Victoria's been going through all sorts of, you know, tough times, illness-wise, pain, suffering. You know, she's, you know, really struggled. I'm so thankful she's here today. Praise the Lord. Amen. You know, but when you see a loved one suffering, when you do anything, and when you're praying, when your heart breaks because they're suffering so much, that's love. When your heart breaks because you don't want to see them suffer, that's true love. Is my heart that broken for lost people? Is my heart that broken that I'm willing to forego my comfort zone to allow them to get to the cross? Am I revolted so much by the sinful lifestyle of others that I've become a stumbling block to people actually finding Jesus through my role in the kingdom? Am I so addicted to this heart of judging that I've become a barrier? Radical faith welcomes all. Radical faith welcomes all, even if it takes us out of our comfort zone. Spirit, lead me to 
a place where my faith is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you will lead me. The song we sang this morning, radical faith welcomes all. Radical faith leads with love. Radical faith leads with love, leaving judgment in God's hands. I think it's really important for us in this time as we close today to understand that how we respond to the events of the day are critical. And if we lead with hostility and judgment, we've got to ask ourselves, what's our motive for that? And are we effectively advancing the kingdom of God? This whole thing about leading with love instead of judgment is impossible if we try to do it on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in order for us to get the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we need to surrender that gavel. Stand with me this morning. We're going to close. And I'm just going to let you quietly reflect for a couple of moments. If we're going to fulfill our mission as a church, we need to acknowledge that we have this issue with judgment. And you may all think that I'm talking about gay marriage. But I'm here to tell you that we have an issue with judgment within the walls of this congregation. I see it every once in a while. It's ugly. And we need to deal with it here before we can go out there and be effective. Amen? If we can't get it right here, we're not going to get it right out there. And it starts with a surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You may find yourself irritated with this sermon. Don't judge me. You might even feel yourself angry. Don't judge me. Please. I'm just reading the word here, interpreting it. If you feel that way, maybe it's time to pray. Because I don't know any other way than to go before the Lord and lay myself out and say, I can't do this without God. I can't lead with love on my own. It's with, I need a power without myself to come in and to help me do that. Let's pray this morning. Bow your heads. The Holy Spirit speaking to few, maybe many people here this morning. Whether you pray at an altar or pray right where you're standing, I want you to respond honestly and authentically today. I know we're past the noon hour, but God's speaking. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to transform us into people of love. Father, we need your transforming power. We need an outpouring of your Holy Spirit in our lives today. Forgive us for leading with judgment. Lord, as we read your word, it very clearly speaks to us. Jesus speaks to us this morning that we need to be people who are not about condemnation, but people who are about leading with love. Lord, help us this morning to relinquish the authority of judgment into your hands and to take up the banner of love, Christ-like love, holy love that 
comes through the empowerment of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, purge us of that judgment nature. Fill us with your love. Give us the eyes of Christ, the eyes of the Master, who in the face of sin, caught in the act, forgave instead of issuing condemnation. Lord, we're so thankful for your mercy today. I am so thankful, Lord, for what you have done for me, for saving me from my sin. And Lord, it almost seems sometimes impossible in my mind that you can transform me and purge me of this bent to judge and fill me with your love. But Lord, the very same faith I have today that I know saves me from a devil's hell, that very same faith today, Lord, I know can push out this bent to judge and fill me with a love that allows me to be your man, advancing the kingdom for your cause and your purpose in a way that's aligned with your will. Lord, we are your people. We are beneficiaries of your mercy and your grace. We have an obligation to pass that mercy and grace on. And I pray in these days moving forward, Lord, that you would touch our hearts, that you would break our hearts and fill them with love for the lost. Change us, Lord. Lead us. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go, lead with love, with mercy, and leave judgment up to God. Thank you for coming this morning.